All right, gang, take your Bible and go to John 14, if you will. John is the fourth gospel. We call them biographies. We talk about that all the time. There are four of them. John's is the last one. Go to chapter 14 of John's gospel. We began our series several weeks ago by unveiling a very troubling statistic in America. In America, almost 25%, that's roughly one in four adults, consider themselves non-affiliated with any kind of organized religion. The number's much higher among millennials. It's like 35%. They like to call themselves nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nuns. They're non-affiliated. They don't want to be affiliated with any kind of organized religion. And one of the things that we wanted to make sure everybody understood at the outset of this series, Something and Nothing, is that People are drifting away from Christianity primarily, not because they find agnosticism or atheism so appealing, but instead because Christianity is losing its appeal. Now, I may have told you this last time, but of the handful of agnostics or atheists that I know, not one of them grew up that way. In other words, most of them grew up the way I grew up. They grew up in a home very much like mine. They went to a church very much like my church. But as an adult, as they continue to ask their adult fact-based questions and people like me keep giving them faith-based answers, their life's experience has begun to conflict or collide with their childhood faith. And in some instances, they feel they've outgrown their Sunday school Jesus. I don't know anybody who grew up an atheist and remains an atheist. The people I know have become disenfranchised with Christianity and have drifted away. Now, what's saddest to me about every one of those stories to which I am familiar is that when they start to tell their story and they start to explain why they're drifting away from Christianity, uh, it has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. It has nothing to do with authentic, Jesus-based, Bible-based Christianity. Very first week, we got together and we laid this on you. A step away from one thing is a step towards something else. You see, many people step away from Christianity because they're arriving or have arrived at some pretty unsettling conclusions about their faith. I need to remind you that a step away from one set of unsettling conclusions is a step toward a whole new set of unsettling conclusions because as we indicated in that very first message, new atheism, as we call it, leads a person to some very unsettling conclusions. The second time we got together, we gave you this. Maybe the God that you grew up with never existed in the first place. Have you ever considered that? Maybe the reason you feel like you've outgrown your Sunday school faith or your childhood God is because that God never existed in the first place. If you grew up worshiping boyfriend God or bodyguard God or on-demand God or guilt God or anti-science God or gap God and now as an adult you've stopped believing, I say, good, you should. Because those gods don't exist. Last time, Jonathan had the message, and he did a really good job with this one. Last time, we wanted to communicate the following. Inspired of God does not mean written by God. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, when the Scripture says, All Scripture is God-breathed, inspired of God, that does not mean that God dictated the words to John's Gospel to John, or dictated the words to Galatians to the Apostle Paul, or dictated the words to James to James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Inspired of God does not mean written by God or dictated by God. So we, as modern Americans, educated, familiar with modern science, we should not be surprised if ancient literature does not reflect the same scientific knowledge we experience and know the same conclusions we've come to today. For instance, if 1,500 years before Jesus Christ, an Old Testament author described the earth as flat, we should not be surprised by that because prior to Magellan's circumnavigation of the globe, Christopher Columbus and Ferdinand Magellan basically proved, or at least had a hunch, that the earth was round, and Magellan actually proved it. Almost everybody thought the world was flat. So to compare... 3,000-year-old literature to what we now know in modern science, if there are things that seem out of whack, you need to understand that is no big deal. It does not change the impact of the inspired Word of God. I mean, the problem with that whole line of thinking is that if your faith is first in this book, and my faith is in this book, but it's not first in this book, I'll explain that in a minute. If your faith is first in this book, in other words, in your mind, Christianity is the Bible, then listen very carefully. As your faith in the Bible goes, so goes your faith in Christianity. As your faith in the Bible goes, so goes your faith in God. You see, last time I alluded to this, but I didn't give you a timeline. Let me, let me go ahead and put this on the screen because I want to make sure that that you see this, and we'll kind of set up what I'm going to say this morning. Jesus Christ was crucified and rose again on the third day in A.D. 30, on or around A.D. 30, okay? A.D. 30. In A.D. 70, one of the biggest events in all of Jerusalem's history, in all of Jewish history, occurred, and that was when the Romans destroyed the city and their temple. Interestingly enough... None of the New Testament authors allude to that destruction. That gives us reason to believe that the overwhelming majority of the New Testament, save the Revelation, the last book in your Bible, all the preceding 26 books of the New Testament were written sometime before A.D. 70, probably between 53, the earliest book is probably Matthew, Mark, maybe Thessalonians, and the latest book would have been John's Revelation around A.D. 96, but all the others besides Revelation were written prior to A.D. 70. Now, fast forward about 300 years, a man by the name of Constantine comes to power as emperor in Rome. And many of you probably think, as I once thought, that Constantine was responsible for making Christianity the state religion of Rome. Well, that's not the case. Constantine, because he became a follower of Jesus Christ, most likely from the influence of his Christian mother, he simply made it legal 
to worship as a Christian. Remember, prior to this, you've got days of Nero, the Colosseum, throw them to the lions, immense, incredible persecution of Christians. But along comes Constantine in AD 350, and he makes it legal to worship as a Christ follower. The man who actually made it, the state religion, was a man by the name of Theodosius in AD 380. Now, Fast forward another six to nine years, and it took that long until we have what you and I know as the Bible. You see, the Bible didn't exist in AD 30, the Old Testament scriptures did, but the Bible as we understand it did not exist in AD 30, AD 70, in AD 350, AD 380, when Theodosius made uh Christianity, the state religion, it existed in 386. So do the math. Christianity boomed for 350 years without this book. For 350 years, Christianity gained momentum, increased in followers, changed the known world at the time. For 350 years, the first century Christ followers didn't have what we have. In fact, that leads to a very important statement. I want to build on it as we go forward. Here it is. Christianity, my Christianity, your Christianity began with a person, not a book. Christianity, as you know it, as I know it, as history records it, did not begin with a book. It began with a person. Because as I said a moment ago, Early Christ followers didn't have what we have. Listen very carefully. For 350 years, the church gained momentum based upon the resurrection of Jesus, not the inspired word of God. Now, don't misunderstand. I believe in the inspired word of God, and you should too. Inspiration is what gives this book its authority. The reason I can speak with authority on a Sunday morning in a setting like this is because I need to stay true to this book. This book gives me authority. Without it, I have none. In the first century, one of the great mysteries of the early church is why, and people have asked me this all the time, why can't we lay our hands on people today and heal them or have God heal them through us? The gift of healing, signs, miracles, the supernatural elements of the faith that were present in the first century church but seemed to die out at the end of that first century as the New Testament wanes on. Why can't we do it today? Because I have my authority here. Paul did not. You see, when Paul went to Galatia, or Ephesus, or Corinth, and he said, I come with a message from God. Someone in the back might say, prove it. And Paul would say, bring me your sick. And he made the lame walk. He made the blind see. He and John and Peter and James, the early disciples, were able through the gift of healing, the supernatural gift of healing, to change lives, both spiritually and physically. And in doing so, those miracles validated the words of the apostles. I don't need that today because I have this. Paul did not. Christianity began with a person not a book. Here is another way of saying it. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. The Bible exists because of Christianity. 
Now, I think many of us who grew up in church, we see it the other way around. We think our faith rises and falls on this book. And on some level, don't misunderstand me, we wouldn't know what we know about God per se were it not for this book. At least we wouldn't know all of it. We wouldn't necessarily know what God expects were it not for this book. Do not hear me demean in any way my respect for the inspired word of God. I've told you this before. I'm not a big reader, but I love studying this book. If you told me, hey, next Saturday it's supposed to be raining, I bought you a novel and I want you to curl up on a couch and I want you to spend the day in a good book. You know what I'd say? Take a hike. I can think of a thousand things I'd rather do than that. But I can spend hours and hours and hours studying this book in my home and in my office. I respect this book. You know I do. I respect its supremacy. I respect its authority. I respect its powerful, inspirated message uh, or inspired message. I am fascinated with how this book came to be. One of the most interesting things to me is that over a period of 1,600 years, in basically three main languages, on three different continents, with 40 different authors, ranging from shepherds to kings to politicians to doctors, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, there is such a unity with this book, I'm blown away by it. But if you think there are a few little problems with it, your head's in the sand. Because there are. We have difficulty explaining and understanding certain parts of it. You don't need to fear that because, as I said earlier, inspiration does not mean dictated. Inspiration does not mean written. Christianity does not exist because this Bible says so. This Bible exists because of Christianity. Jesus got himself in trouble with the most religious people in the community. They were called Pharisees. And their job was to protect, interpret, explain, and revere the Old Testament scriptures. Along came Jesus, this carpenter's son from Nazareth. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, you know those Old Testament scriptures that you so revere? You know those Old Testament scriptures that you protect? That you almost worship? They're all about me. Who says stuff like that? Jesus said, the Old Testament scripture that you so revere, I am superior to it because I am the fulfillment of it. That's one of the things that got him in trouble. And that's one of the things that got him crucified. Now stop and think about this for a minute. Because this is how many of you came to believe. And I'm going to challenge that today. Many people started to put those dots together while Jesus was teaching, while he was healing, while he was preaching. They said, you know what? Let's look at the Old Testament scriptures. Scribes and Pharisees, men like Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, who came to Jesus at night, had his own questions about his person and his nature. They started saying, you know what? Micah said the Messiah would be this, and look, he's that. And Isaiah said the Messiah would be this, and look, he's that. In fact, we can connect so many of these Old Testament prophetic dots, you have to come to the conclusion that Jesus is Messiah. So these people believed something. But let me ask you something. What happened on Friday at the crucifixion? Peter wasn't the only one to abandon him. All of his father followers abandoned him. 
You see, regardless of what they believed on Thursday, when Jesus was dead on Friday, Saturday they woke up and said, I guess we were wrong. It doesn't matter what I believe, and it doesn't matter if I can connect those dots in the Old Testament Scriptures. Look, Messiah is dead. Not supposed to end like this. They saw, listen to these words because these are critical. They saw with their own eyes a dead Savior on Friday. And so Saturday, regardless of what this said, it didn't matter. But what happened on Sunday? Everything changed on Sunday. Because again, they saw with their own eyes, he was alive. Christianity, as you know it, as we experience it, at least I should say it this way, as we should know it, is all about Christ. It began with Jesus. And while I revere, treasure, even love this book, my faith does not rest on it. My faith rests on the resurrection. Following the resurrection, those that had abandoned him on Saturday, they lined up and said, we're back. We were wrong. Sorry. Here we are. In fact, here's a big thought. Think of it this way. People followed Jesus after the resurrection because of the resurrection. Again, follow me. On Thursday... Before he was betrayed and crucified on Friday, many people had connected the dots. They had a common belief about Christ. But on Friday, they saw him with their own eyes die before their faces. Saturday, they no longer believed. Didn't matter what the Old Testament scriptures said. But Sunday, when they saw with their own eyes a resurrected Jesus Christ, they jumped back on the bandwagon. And I would argue at that moment, it had very little to do with the dots they had previously connected in the Bible and had everything to do with the fact that they saw a resurrected Jesus Christ. That's why Christianity stands on the resurrection first and the Bible second. So if you grew up with one of those Bible-tells-me-so kind of faiths, and as an 18-year-old impressionable college student, you sat under a, a professor that you respected, 50 times smarter than you, and he began to poke holes in your Bible, in your belief structure. Listen, as your faith in the Bible went, so went your faith in Christianity and maybe even God. Here's the big idea. I want to make sure you get this. Christianity did not begin because people believed in something. Christianity began because people saw something. Think about that. You see, somewhere along the way, we got this mistaken notion that faith in Christ is all about believing. Don't ask to see. That's why Thomas gets such a bad rap. Thomas is the what disciple? The doubting disciple. Thomas is, shame on you, shame on you, shame on you. But how did Jesus respond to Thomas when Thomas said, I just can't believe it until I can see him with my own eyes? Did Jesus chastise him? Did Jesus scold him? No, he said, look, Thomas, matter of fact, touch him. Go ahead. And then he said to his disciples, you're blessed because you have seen. Others will be blessed because they believe and do not see. Somewhere along the way in the last 2,000 years, we have made our faith, our belief structure is become built around what we believe. And what we believe is firmly rooted in the scripture and rightly so. But not about what people saw. 
I don't care who the college professor is. He can poke holes in my scripture if he wants to, but he cannot deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People saw him with their own eyes and news traveled like wildfire. The disciples, the inner circle of three, Mary, Martha, over and over and over ago, hundreds at a time, witnessed, they saw with their very own eyes, and they didn't have to believe on something that was written down on a page somewhere and connect those dots like many of us think we have to, and that's what makes our faith so fragile, we say. No, nothing could be farther from the truth. Christianity did not begin because people decided to believe something. Christianity began because people saw something. Many of you, I'm sorry to admit, because we've had this conversation, are scared to death that someone, some special someone, one day will stop believing. And in your mind, your faith will come tumbling down. Or if enough followers of Jesus Christ in America or worldwide stop believing that Christianity will fall apart. Nothing could be farther from the truth. I'm going to give you a passage, an angle on a passage that you've probably never considered. I have to be honest with you. I wish I were this smart. Andy Stanley gave me this angle on the scripture, okay? I want you to see what Jesus says in John chapter 14. If you've been to more than three funerals in the past year, you've probably heard this passage read at one of them. It begins in verse 1. Jesus says, I'm going away. Don't let your hearts be troubled. If I go, I'll come back. And Thomas pipes up and says, Jesus, you say you're going and we should know the way to where you're going, but we don't know the way. And Jesus responds in John 14, verse 6, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's one of those seven I am statements that we covered earlier in the year. He goes on, no one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 7, if you really know me, you will know the Father as well. In fact, from now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Wow. That's either supremely arrogant or it's true. Jesus is saying, look, you want to know the Father? You want to know God? You're looking at him. Again, statements like this got him crucified. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Jesus said, I am the way. You're concerned with seeing the Father? Look at me. In fact, that's what Philip asks in the very next verse, verse 8. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. That's a reasonable request, isn't it, in that setting? Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. I guess so. Certainly be enough for me, wouldn't it? Let me ask you something. How would your faith change If God appeared right here for 90 seconds, if for 90 seconds God materialized, he appeared, he spoke to you, you could walk by and you could touch him. He said, trust me, hang in there, you're on the right track, keep trusting, keep the faith. How would that change you? That's all Philip is asking. Jesus, look, I'm having a hard time getting my mind around this. You, the Father, the Father's you. I don't get that. How about you just make God make an appearance? Can, can you get God to make an appearance? Watch what Jesus says. Jesus answered, verse 9, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone, watch this, 
who has seen me has seen the Father. Not anyone who has believed in me will believe in God. Not anyone who can connect, connect the Old Testament dots. Not anyone who knows their theology in a systematic fashion. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Again, supremely arrogant or true. How can you say, show us the Father? Watch verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Do you know what Jesus is telling the disciples? Men, you want to know what God says? Listen to what I say. Men, you want to see what God does? Watch what I do. Men, you want to get close to God? Get close to me. Philip says, if you just make God show up, that'd be good enough. And Jesus says, look, I could tell you right now to believe, but I'll take it a step further. I'm asking you to open your eyes and examine the evidence. In fact, here we go. Ready to have your socks knocked off? Look at verse 11. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the, what's the next word? Evidence. Does that sound like seminary training? Evidence. Does that sound like theology? Evidence. Does that sound like connecting Old Testament dots? Evidence. Does that sound like Old Testament prophecy? Or does that sound like science? See it. Hear it. Watch it. Experience it. Participate in it. If you don't believe that I'm in the Father, the Father is in me, I get that's difficult for you to comprehend. At least, Jesus said, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Now, at this point, the disciples had seen some pretty astounding works from Jesus. He'd healed a man that had never walked. The man got up, took up his mat, and walked out of the place. He healed a man, gave a man sight that he'd never seen. For goodness sake, in John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But all of that paled in comparison to what they would see on the Sunday following the Friday of crucifixion. Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. Jesus in John 14 did not ask his followers to believe in God solely by faith or to believe in himself solely by faith. Jesus said, look around you, there's ample evidence for both. You see, when that impressionable 18-year-old college freshman goes away to school and has built his or her faith on a Bible-tells-me-so belief system without ever realizing that Christianity didn't begin when the disciples got together and said, let's all believe this about Jesus. Ready? Break. That's not how Christianity began. Christianity began... When people saw with their own eyes something that blew them away. And for 350 plus years, without this, what they saw sustained the early church revolution. It matters to me what Jesus thinks about God. Because Jesus is the foundation of my faith. This matters to me too. But I'm arguing today that if you want to know about God, his existence or non-existence, if you want to know about his nature, his character and his ways, let's ask Jesus because Jesus is the supreme authority and witness of God. 
Three quick things. <laughs> and I've got like three quick minutes. Let me go very fast. Hold on. Jesus said, number one, God is spirit. In John chapter 4, Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. We know her as the, quote, woman at the well. This woman believed in God, but some of her beliefs were misguided. If you go home and read John 4 this afternoon, you'll realize that Jesus corrected some of her misguided notions and beliefs about God. In doing so, he answered by saying in verse 24, you need to understand, woman at the well, God is spirit. Now, any modern educated person ought to be able to wrap their minds around that because none of us thinks that God is like this little cartoon character in a white robe and a long silver beard, right? With, you know, angels and harps flying around him. We know that's not the case. God is timeless. God is beyond space. God is not limited by the laws of this universe. Most of us who believe in a creator believe that God is the creatorless creator. In fact, even in scientific terms, God is the causal agent to the intelligently designed universe. You see, I didn't quote one Bible verse when I described God. God, forgive me for how this sounds, pushed the button that started the Big Bang, if you believe in that. Anyone who believes in a creator, even if they deny this book, and even if they deny Jesus Christ, anyone who believes in a creator believes that creator had to exist prior to the Big Bang. Okay? Jesus said it 2,000 years ago. God, here's the way to put it, God is the uncreated first cause. He is that causal agent who intelligently designed the universe. That's hard to get your mind around, isn't it? God is spirit. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere at one time. He is beyond the laws of physics. So then God goes a step, Jesus goes a step further. In Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11, the disciples were men of prayer even before they met Jesus, most likely. But when they watched Jesus pray, they scratched their heads and thought, I don't pray like that. So they asked him, how do we pray? And Jesus gave them what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. A better way to name to call it is the model prayer. And in the model prayer, he said, hey, you want to know how to pray? Here's how you begin. Say, Father, Father. Number one, God is spirit. Number two, God is Father. So, again, I'll put this slide up on there to make sure you, you, you put this together. God is spirit. God is both far away and unknowable. And yet, at the same time, God is close and personal. That's why God, Jesus said, refer to him as Father. It's like Jesus says, look, I get that you're not going to put all of this together. This whole God is spirit thing is beyond the natural laws of the universe. Unlike you, he is not bound by a body. Unlike you, he is not limited. He is not uh, um, surrendered to the natural laws of physics in the universe. Unlike you, he is spirit. But, in order to get you started... I want you to begin by calling him Father. He is close and personal as Father while he is far away and unknowable. Along comes John, possibly the closest disciple to Jesus Christ. He was part of the inner three, Peter, James, John. John, remember, was the guy at the cross who knelt by Mary. And Jesus, while he died, he said, John, that's your mother. Take care of her. And mom, Mary... Treat him like a son. Remember, it's John, the disciple turned apostle, who in John chapter 20 runs in on Sunday to an empty tomb. 
And the Bible says he saw, he examined the evidence, and he believed. John repeated something that Jesus said when he was with his disciples. Jesus said, the distinguishing characteristic of my followers, people who believe in me, people who believe in God, is going to be love. It's not going to be doctrine. It's not going to be behavior. It's not going to be biblical knowledge. It's going to be love. John wrote three epistles in the latter part of your New Testament. And in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16, John writes, God is love. Now, apologetics is the science and the practice of reasonable argument. I had an apologetics class many years ago when I was in school. Dr. Nat Phillips was my professor. And I love Nat Phillips. He's kind of, kind of a round man. He kind of wore his pants high and his little tie was short, you know. And he got real energetic and he'd ask a student a question and they'd give an answer and he'd say no. He'd go to another one and he'd say no. Finally a third one and he'd go no like that. We'd laugh and then he'd give us the right answer. Nat Phillips taught apologetics. C.S. Lewis is perhaps the most famous apologist to the Christian faith that any of us have ever heard of. Brilliant man, brilliant man. Okay? In my apologetics class, when we were discussing the nature and existence of God, Dr. Nat Phillips wrote a simple statement on the chalkboard that changed my life, and it's going to change yours this morning because I'm going to give it to you. Here it is, three words. Shade requires sun. Bam! Is that powerful or what? Now, wait a minute. Evidently, you didn't let it sink in. Shade requires sun. Not changing your life? All right, hang on. Let me explain it. Evidently, this is an old apologetic argument from Dallas Theological Seminary because Andy Stanley uses the exact same analogy. Shade could not exist were it not for the sun. The only reason we understand shade is because we understand sun. Sun can exist without shade, right? But shade cannot exist without the sun. Now, build on the analogy. Jesus said, God is about love. John repeated, God is love. The only reason we understand evil in the world is because of love. See? Like shade cannot exist without sun, evil cannot be interpreted, understand or me- understood or measured without goodness and love. In fact, here's a way to say it. Let me find my place. The common question that most people ask as they start that drifting process is, if God is love and your Bible says so, then why does evil exist in the world? That question has been around since the very beginning. Think of shade requiring sun. Since we cannot recognize, since we cannot comprehend, since we cannot verbalize or define a good purpose for evil and suffering, we assume that no purpose exists. In other words, we look around, we experience evil like we experience shade, but rather than connecting the dots, shade wouldn't exist without sun, evil cannot exist without goodness and love, we make the leap, well, I guess God doesn't exist. If that is the question that bothers you, look, i got a much better question. I want you to think about this one. Why do you know that there's evil in the world? Bam! Why do you know? How do you know? 
You know, like you know shade and sun. You know that evil is in the world that ought reveal to you that love exists. That God, the creator, is all about the love. We recognize evil because we understand the good. Unlove is only possible because of love. So think about this. Every time you seek goodness, every time you speak to justice, every time you tell yourself, man, I really should do this because that's the right thing to do, you are declaring the existence of God. How do you know you ought to? How do you know you should or shouldn't? How do you know God? Just like shade declares the existence of the sun, I should, I ought to, let's pursue justice, fairness, declares the existence of God. Listen very carefully. Everybody I know who believes in God, but not necessarily the inspired word, not necessarily my Jesus, still believes, and you'll hear it on TV, you'll hear it in music, you'll read it in literature, still believes in God who, quote, loves us. Well, how do you know that? Believe it or not, that is a distinctly Christian doctrine. They didn't come up with that. Jesus came up with that. In John chapter 14, this is what Jesus told his disciples. If you want to know what God says, listen to what I say. If you want to know what God is up to, watch what I do. And if you want to know God, follow Jesus. I'm impressed by what this book can teach me about God, but I'm even more impressed based upon the evidence, things that can be seen, witnessed, measured, what Jesus says about God. He is spirit, he is father, and he is love. Let's pray. Father, I would imagine that Most of us here today, we believe in God. We believe in your word. We believe in your son. But, Father, some struggle with this fear that somehow that belief is fragile, that it could all come tumbling down given the right set of circumstances. God, I pray we walk out of here realizing that our faith, Our Christianity did not begin when a group of close followers decided to believe the same thing about one man. Our faith began when hundreds and hundreds and then thousands of people saw with their own eyes the resurrected Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Fantastic to see you today. Make it a good week. I'll see you next time.